Well, good morning, church family. I'm glad that you are here today. Uh, several people have said something about my tie. Let me explain this to you. Um, my buddy Gary Adams is a Georgia fan, and I'm a Tennessee fan. And so nearly every Sunday, Gary, in a good-natured way, says something about me not having a tie on. And uh, so he, he proposed last week. He said, I tell you what, if, if Georgia beats Tennessee, you've got to wear a tie next Sunday. I said, all right, and if Tennessee beats Georgia, you've got to come to church without a tie next Sunday. Of course, I went home and started looking through my ties on Sunday. I knew where that was going, and, and so uh, Peggy Bagwell knew about our little agreement that I had with Gary, and, and after the, the game, if you can call it that, yesterday, uh, Peggy texted me. She said, after this game, you probably need to wear a tux. <laughs> uh, so maybe next week I'll have a tux on, and you know why. Hey, uh, two weeks from today, just two weeks from today, we begin our revival, which is we're calling surrender. Dr. Gary Hollingsworth will be here on Sunday morning, the executive director of South Carolina Baptist Convention. Sunday night, my brother Dave will be here preaching, bringing his entire church with him. And I got word today they're, they're very excited, and they're, they're, they're just going to show up big numbers next week, so I'll, I'm, or uh, in two weeks. So I need you to do that as well. Uh, Dave and his church will be here on Sunday night, and then they will be in the revival with us Monday through Wednesday as well. And then our speaker on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday is going to be Dr. John Avant. Uh, Dr. Avant is president of Life Action Ministries, a former president, uh, a former pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, I'll tell you some more things next week. He's also a, a, an author of several books. I've got two of his books in my personal library. Uh, this one is called The Passion Promise. Would love for you to get this and read this. In, before the next two weeks for revival. And then this one is called Authentic Power, How to Unleash It in Your Life. And so we're very fortunate to have Dr. Avant here uh, for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I uh, hope that you're planning on being here. And I got a question, follow up from last Sunday. Last Sunday I asked you to contact your BSF members, every person in your class, and invite them back to BSF on the Revival Sunday as well as to Revival. And so have you done that yet? Have you contacted your classes uh, I hope that you have, and if you haven't, let me remind you, you've got another week to get it done. So let's reach out, contact everybody on your class roll, even those you don't know, or at least send them a card or a letter, and let's invite everybody back uh, for October 15th. Now, we're in a series that I'm calling Surrender, where we're looking at this question, what is revival, and how does it happen? So last week we talked about the fact that revival is not an event. It's not something you place on the calendar. The word revive means to bring back to life again. And revival by its very nature is something that only God can do. Only God can bring us back to life again. But there are some things that we can do to prepare for revival. So I want to ask you a couple of questions this morning. And you don't need to respond out loud, but I would like for you to re uh, kind of consider this, when was the last time you evaluated your life and just allowed the Holy Spirit to kind of take a temperature of your soul? When was the last time that you just got by yourself and on your back porch or, or maybe in your bedroom or maybe it's when you're driving your car, when was the last time you just kind of got along with God and took a temperature of your soul? Or maybe to ask that question another way, where are you with God right now? How would you describe your relationship with God right now? Or another question would be this, what would it take to move you in God's direction? What would it take to move you more 
in God's direction. So last week we talked about being confronted with the Word of God. We said this is where revival starts. Revival starts when we're confronted with the truth of the Word of God and we dedicate ourselves to obeying what God shows us. That's the first step. The next step toward revival is this one. To be broken before the Lord over our sin. You see, when you really start to seek God, He's likely to point out something in your heart or in your life or in your past that you've not dealt with. Just because you've forgotten it doesn't mean that God has. Just because you have rationalized it doesn't mean that God will. Seeking God requires a level of honesty that at first might seem threatening. And covering up our faults and covering up our sin and our failures sometimes seems to be the best option for us. But that never leads to revival. It never leads you closer to God. Covering up your sins and your failures never pushes you closer to God. It's just the opposite. So here's the one lesson I want to teach you today. I want to say it again and again throughout the message. The one thing I want you to remember, the one thing I want you to practice, the one thing I want you to hang on to is this one lesson, and here it is. You and I will never meet God in revival until we first meet Him in brokenness. I want you to remember that, church. And I want us to practice that. You and I will never meet God in revival Until we meet Him in brokenness. Now I understand that broken is hardly a positive word in our culture. Someone perhaps has made a broken promise to you. You've experienced someone who made a promise and they broke it. And broken promises bring up some perhaps some emotional baggage in the past. Broken is not a good word for you. Or if you played sports or you're very active in something, you perhaps have had a broken bone or... Maybe in your past there's been a broken engagement. Or if your washer at home doesn't work, how do you describe it? You say it's broken. Or some of you would say you came from a broken home. Broken, in our perspective, is mostly a negative word because it refers to something that's damaged. It refers to something that's sometimes useless. It's broken. But hear me and hear me well. Broken is not a negative word to God. I want to show you that in Scripture today. We're going to be all over the Scripture. We're going to look at at least four different passages. I'm going to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want you to understand that brokenness is not a negative concept with God. Open your Bibles with me first to Isaiah chapter 57 in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57, verse 15, this is what we read. For this is what the high and the lofty one says. It's a reference to God. This is what God says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. This is what he says. It's in quotation marks. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite. Now let me give you a word picture for this word contrite. The Hebrew word here, it has the idea of being crushed. Contrite means crushed. It means broken. All right? So this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. He says, I live in a high and holy place. That's right. But also, here's another place I live. With him who is contrite, with him who is crushed, with him who is broken, 
and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. To revive the heart of the broken. You see, brokenness is not a a negative word to God. Because when we come to God broken, we're allowing Him to fix us. When we come to God broken, then all of a sudden we are coming to God admitting who we really are and what we've really done. And when we get to that point, that's when God says, finally, finally I can do something with your life now. So, that's in the Old Testament. Let me show you the same concept. Different words, same concept in the New Testament. Go to the book of James. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And I'm going to read several verses here and not really outline anything, just make some comments about the verses as we read through them. James chapter 4. We'll start in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people or you faithless people, that is, you're not faithful to God. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the Spirit uh, He calls to live in us envies intensely? But now look at verse 6. But He gives, what's those next? He gives us what? Aren't you glad for that? I underline that in my Bible. He gives us more grace. His grace never runs out. He gives us more grace. And that is why the Scripture says, and notice this is a quotation of Scripture. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, James is telling us in chapter 4, verse 6, that humility draws God to our side. There's something about humility, there's something about brokenness that that tends to draw God toward us. But the opposite is also true. When our lives are filled with pride, when we're filled with, with our own selves and with pride, the Bible says that God opposes the proud. If I could put it in football language, since it is that season, verse 6, let me read it again. God stiff arms the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God pushes away the proud, but he hugs and and brings to himself the humble. And then James says in verse 7, because that is true, he says this is what you need to do. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. That makes sense. In In the word submit, it literally is the idea of surrender. Because God has grace towards those who are humble, towards those who are broken, the, the natural course of action would be to submit yourself. And, and the word submit in the, in the Greek language has the idea of getting in your proper rank. It has, it's a military term, and it has the idea of recognizing God's authority, that He's Lord of your life, and you get in your proper rank. You stop acting and living like you're God. You stop acting and living like you're in charge. Get in your proper rank. Submit yourself to God. Surrender would be another word we would use here. And then, what do you think happens when you do that? Look what he says at the next part of the verse. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. You know why he says resist the devil after he says submit to God? He says resist the devil because Satan is not going to give up easily. When you decide that you need to get in your proper rank, when you decide that you need to make the Lord Lord of your life again. When when you decide that you're going to surrender and submit to God, when you decide to come to God broken, Satan is going to oppose you on every front. 
And he's going to con- con- try to convince you that you're going to make a fool of yourself and you're, and you're just going to look stupid. And, and he's going to tell you all kinds of things. And that's why James says, listen, if you plan to surrender, then you need to resist the devil because he will not give up easily. And then he says in verse 8, come near to God and he'll come near to you. What a wonderful promise. Can somebody say amen to that? Would you underline that in your Bible? Come near to God and he will come near to you. That's the good news. And then James gets real personal when he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, we often think of revival as a time of great joy. We think of revival as a time of celebration. We think of revival as as a time of, of great blessings. And the end result is, now hear me, church, listen, there's no such thing as a painless revival. No such thing as a painless revival. Listen, we want the end result. We just don't want the process to get there. We want revival. We, we want to celebrate God's presence. We want to feel God's nearness. We want to see God work in miraculous ways. We want revival. We just don't want the process that it takes to get there. We want revival so long as we don't have to be broken. So long as we can just do our thing. And if God could somehow send revival, that would be wonderful. But there's no such thing as a painless revival. If you want want to walk closely with God, your sin and my sin has to be dealt with. And so James tells us how to do that in verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's a clear call for repentance. A clear call to come broken before the Lord. James is saying if, if you really want to come near to God, you're going to have to repent and be broken before Him. And then he says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. God hates your sin, but God loves you. And so if you will humble yourself before the Lord, if you'll be honest before God, He won't reject you. If if you're honest with God about what you've allowed in your life, if you're honest with God about what's in your heart, if you're honest with God about the sins that you're struggling with, God will not reject you. God will embrace you. That's what he's talking about in this verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Get down low before... Look up here. Get down low before the Lord. And when you get down low before the Lord, He will lift you up. It wouldn't it be wonderful when you got broken before God and you got down just broken in your sin? And you're, just, you're just broken before Him. Wouldn't it be wonderful to feel His warm, loving arms around you, picking you up and say, My child, I love you. And I want to restore what we once had. You see, you and I need to remember this. We will never meet God in revival unless we meet Him in brokenness. Now, brokenness is not a feeling. Brokenness is a choice. It's not primarily a gloomy countenance. It's an absolute surrender of my sin to the grace of God and an absolute surrender of my will to the will of God. And Scripture gives us many examples of people who were broken and they found out that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You might even call it the beauty of brokenness. There is a beauty of brokenness woven throughout this book. A beauty of brokenness where people who were sinful and and people who had strayed from God 
came before God broken and they experienced God lifting them up. It's the beauty of brokenness. I want to show you one example of that. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, perhaps a very familiar scripture to some of you. It's in Psalm 51. Would you open God's word? Uh, turn to Psalm 51. Now, for, for many of you, perhaps Psalm 51 is very familiar, but for some of you, this may be new information. So let me just summarize Psalm 51. This psalm is about a man who had some dirt in his life that he could not remove. He had a stain in his past that he couldn't clean. And here's the shocking thing about the author of this psalm. He was one of the heroes of the Bible. In fact, if you had a top ten list of the greatest men in the Bible, his name would be on that top ten list. And his name was David. And Psalm 51, when you read it, is a very personal and transparent psalm. It's, it's really a prayer. It's as if you, you get to... Read David's personal prayer journal where he writes out a prayer to God. And David, this great man of God, writes out his prayer. And in the very first sentence of his prayer, we understand that David has messed up big time. Look what he says, chapter, Psalm 51, verse 1. Here's how, what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. You see, if you want revival in your life, personally, you have to come to grips with those things that you've allowed into your life that do not honor God. You see, you need to understand something. There are three yous. There's the you that you see in the mirror. There's the you that others see, and then there is the you that God sees. And the you that God sees is the one that you really need to deal with. The you that others see, they might be impressed by you. And the you that you see, you may or may not realize the depth of your sin, but the you that God sees is the you that God wants to deal with. David dealt with God on that level. You see, the Bible is, is like a mirror where we get to see what God sees. And David finally came to the point where he was willing to deal with what God saw in his life. And so we read these, verse, uh, these words in verse 2 and 3. David says to God, as he's broken before the Lord, he says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, there are three words for sin in verse 51. It's interesting that David didn't just talk about sin. He used three different words to refer to his sin in Psalm 51. The first word that he uses is the word transgression. It's found in verse 1. David talks in verse 1 about, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my, my what, church? My transgressions, not transgressions singular, but my transgressions plural. Now the Hebrew word transgression here means, watch this, it means a, a deliberate, intentional, willful act. A transgression is not that, oh, I slipped up. A transgression is this, I know what God wants for me in this area of my life and I'm refusing to do it. That's a transgression. 
Transgression is when I revolt and I rebel against what I know the clear will of God to be. That's a transgression. Transgression is where I know where the line is, I know that God drew the line, and I'm stepping across it anyway. David said, God, have mercy because there are transgressions, plural, transgressions in my life where I've stepped across the line that I knew you drew. Then he uses another word for sin and and his problems. And he says in verse 2, he uses the word iniquity. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. Iniquity means that there's something twisted in me. Something bent in me that needs to be straightened. That there's something that's happened. This is not the way God designed me. This is not the way God intends it to be. This this is not the way God built me. There's something that has become twisted in me that needs to be straightened. That's the word iniquity. And then the third word David uses is the word sin. You can see it in verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from from my sin. And the word sin there simply means failure to live up to God's standard. It, it has the idea of missing the mark. I know what the target is and I just can't hit it. I keep trying but I keep missing the mark. The idea behind all three of these words is simply this. You know the standard and you violate it. And David says, God, that's me. That's me. Now listen to me, church. I am so glad that the Bible tells us the truth about people. I'm so glad this is not a sanitized book where our heroes of the Bible are pure and perfect. I am so I couldn't relate to somebody like that, could you? If our heroes were always pure and perfect, they always did the right thing, I'd have a hard time relating to them. But the heroes of the Bible, the heroes of the Bible were often messed up people. And David was saying, that's me, God, that's me. There are transgressions in my life. I've revolted and rebelled against you. There are iniquities in my life. There are things that are twisted and bent. There's sin in my life. I've missed the mark continually. Now, the interesting thing about this is, you say, well, what did David do? I mean, what could a man that's like that do if if he was such a great man what what did he do well we don't have time to read it but if you're taking notes write down this reference it's second samuel 11 and 12 second samuel 11 and 12 and you'll find out what david did but let me just describe it to you this way david was one of those guys who was blessed by god from the very beginning David was, was a man who had a heart for God, even as a young man. It was as if the, the hand of God was upon him. It was as if the favor of God was all over him. He killed Goliath, a giant, and became famous overnight as a young man. Later, as a military leader, he had one victory after another, after another, after another. It was, again, as if the favor of God, the hand of God was upon him. David was eventually appointed by God to be king over Israel. Now listen to this. Not just appointed to be king, appointed by God to be king. That's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good stature when you're appointed by God to be king over Israel. That's David. And at the height of his career, listen to this. At the height of his career, he made a bad decision. At the height of his career, he lusted after a woman and had an affair with her. You see, the man who had killed a giant found a giant he could not kill. His lust got the best of him. 
And once he had the affair with Bathsheba, David did what human beings have done from the beginning of time. He tried to cover his sin. Again, we don't have the time to read it, but I do want you to turn to it because there's one verse I want you to, to, to read. But if you want to write down in your notes, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 6 through 27. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 6 through 27 is the account of David trying to cover his sin. And he, he tried one thing and then another thing and then another thing. He tried as best he could to cover his tracks. All right, And once he covered his tracks, David must have thought what we sometimes think. He must have said, well, that's the end of that. I've erased it. Nobody will ever know about it. Except what we read in chapter 11, verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her, Bathsheba, brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And David must have thought, that's the end of it, that's over, nobody ever know. But notice the second part of that verse. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You see, God knew. That's what David forgot. God knew. He'd covered his tracks. He he probably thought everything was fine and he had erased it and that was the end of that. but, But God knew. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, ladies and gentlemen, David's problem was not that Bathsheba was pregnant. His problem, my problem, your problem, our problem is that we have a sin problem. You're never going to be set free and be clean before God until you come to that realization. I have a sin problem. And David came to grips with his own sinful character, and it was not a very good picture. Go back to Psalm 51. I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about. Go back to Psalm 51 and look at verse 3. Get your pen ready. We're going to mark something. David says in Psalm 51, verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Would you underline the word my? You'll see it twice in that verse. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David is coming to God broken. I'm going to tell you something. There's two kinds of brokenness. Write this down if you're taking notes. There's two kinds of brokenness. First of all, there's brokenness over my sin. Brokenness over my sin. And that was David in verse 3. My sin is ever before me. He was broken over his sin. And when you say, Lord, I'm broken over my sin, that means... I can't blame someone else. I can't blame my circumstances. I can't blame the way I was raised. I, I can't say it's just a weakness. I can't say it was just a poor decision. I can't say it was just a moment of, of weakness. I, I, I can't say it was just inappropriate behavior. But let me tell you something. Broken people don't blame others. Broken people claim it and say, this is my sin. And the truth is, there are stains in your heart that are no one else's fault but yours. And when you're really broken before God, you realize that. When you're really broken before God, you claim brokenness over my sin. There's a second kind of brokenness though. The second kind of brokenness is being broken over what my sin has done to my Savior. Look what David says in the next verse. Verse 4. Against you 
and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 3, David is broken over his sin. And in verse 4, David is broken over what his sin has done to his Savior. And he says, against you and you only have I done what is evil. I've rebelled against you, God. And that breaks my heart. The old gospel song says it well, doesn't it? It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You see, you're not going to get healed. You're not going to get well. You're not going to get free until you get there. Broken over my sin and broken over what my sin has done to my Savior. Then I want you to see what David said in verse 6. Psalm 51 verse 6. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. You see, ladies and gentlemen, before revival, before revival can be felt in a church, it must be experienced on a personal level. I, I wish we could wave a magic wand and the church experience revival. That would be wonderful. I wish we had some kind of formula where the church could experience revival. That would be amazing. But before the church can ever experience revival, it has to be experienced on a personal level. And how do do you get there? Verse 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be clean whiter than snow. But what about all those other people and all that they need to do? And, and if they'd get right, if they'd stop, and if they'd start, and if they'd come to this, and if they'd do that. No, listen, listen. God will take care of the other people. David shows us what can happen when we focus on us. Wash me. Cleanse me. You see, probably the greatest single hindrance to our experiencing personal revival is an unwillingness to deal with me. An unwillingness to humble ourselves and confess my desperate need for God's mercy. I mean, why would somebody choose to be broken? Why would anybody choose to come before God and and admit their sin and be broken before Him? Who would want to do that? Somebody who wants revival. Let me put it to you this way. Why do you go to the hospital and allow a surgeon to cut on you? Is it because you enjoy the pain and the hospital bills? No. It's because you know that that's the only path to health and to healing. Some of you, the only path is spiritual health and the healing that you so desperately need is not to try harder and do better, but it's to be broken. God broken over my sin and broken over what my sin has done to my Savior you see we will never meet God in revival until we meet him in brokenness the crazy thing is everybody would look at your pastor the crazy thing is we think we're giving up too much if we do that We think that if we go down that road, we'll have to give up too much. 
But it's just the opposite. The ones who refuse to be broken are the ones who are giving up too much. Because they're giving up what God could do. They're giving up what God wants for their life. And so I want you to go with me to final verse in Psalm, two verses in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse uh, 16 and 17. I want you to notice what David said in this psalm. This, this transparent prayer that he prayed. David said in verse 16, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. I know you, you want more than just the, the ritual of, of, of going to the place of worship and offering sacrifices. You, you do not delight in sacrifices or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. There's nothing special about that to you, Lord. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Things that God wants you to really bring Him is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, when we choose the pathway of brokenness and confess our sins to God, we're choosing the pathway of revival. Now, this is not the kind of message where I preach it and we sing a verse and everybody goes home and nothing changes. This is the kind of message where I hope it happens like it did in the first service where this altar was full. And where people were coming not to me as pastor, but they were coming to God and they got on their knees before the Lord and they were just... Broken. I saw tears. I saw people just weeping. I, I saw people confessing. Just broken before God. Just trying to at least start that process. Maybe you can't finish it here, but at least you can start it here. And say, God, I, I don't want to stay where I am. I don't want to stay the way I am. I want something better than this. I want something more than this. I, I have rebelled against you. I've transgressed. I there's iniquity in me. There's something twisted that needs to be straight. There's sin in me. I keep missing the mark every day. I keep missing the mark. And, and God, you seem so distant and you seem so far away. And I know you haven't moved. I know I have. And the only thing I know to do is come before you broken. James says, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. That's your invitation. Do you want God's opposition? Or do you want God's grace? Won't you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray that we would come before you today, not for show, but because we so desperately want and need personal revival. And help us to understand, not just in our heads, but in our heart, that we will never meet you in revival until we meet you in brokenness. And may that start here today. May it start right here as we bring our lives to you, our messes to you, our sin to you, our rebellion to you, the, what's twisted in us as we bring it all to you and we confess it to you and we surrender our sin for your grace. We surrender our will to your will. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.